I'm excited about tonight. Uh, tonight we're looking at Mark chapter 5, which unlike some of the other chapters in Mark that we've looked at so far, has two extended stories. All the other chapters have been broken up into smaller bits, anything as small as three verses, like the temptation or the baptism, to as many as six or eight, but they've been like multiple stories at a time. What we have here is just two stories. The story of casting out of a demon, interestingly enough, uh, nice segue, uh, the demoniac, um, which we'll take a look at in a second, um, and the healing of Jairus, Jairus's daughter, and the woman with the issue of blood. So those are the two stories um, side by side in, in chapter 5. The first one, I think, um, which is an extended exorcism story. We've had exorcisms already, but they've been small. They've been like two or three verses. Um, but now we get this kind of extended one. Um, we'll take a look at that. But I actually want to start with... Um, want to start with this woman with the issue of blood. So we're going to take a few minutes. We'll pause... The recording because this will this will take some time. I have a handout for you, and on one side, it has Mark five twenty one through forty three uh, from the NIV. Nothing special about that translation, but it's a you know popular one. And on the reverse side, there's a place for you to write. Um, I don't necessarily have something you to write on, I guess. Just use your hymnals to write on the back of. <laughs> Thanks for laughing. <laughs> what, what? What's that? So, uh, there is a reason to, so to be able to write. So what I'd like you to do um, is uh, take, take five minutes or so, read, read the passage. But before you read it, um, what I'm going to be asking you to do is on the back side, I want you to do kind of a comparison and contrast between Jairus and the woman who had the issue of blood. So observations is what we're looking for. It's kind of like a biblical interpretation 101. So we're not, we're not looking to interpret it. We're not looking to say what a theology or what we think it's about, but just really basic observations. So he's a man, she's a woman. His name is Jairus. We don't know her name. That kind of stuff. So as you read through, pay attention to Jairus, pay attention to the woman, and then write down on the back your um, observations. So this is, this is independent work. Oh, yeah. Um, I always we, had to do group work when I was in college. I know. We will do group work later. <laughs> we're, we're small enough tonight that we'll just have one large group. But um, I'll go ahead and give you a minute and let you do that. So... Having done our teaching activity, trying to figure out the similarities and differences between Jairus and the woman who's sick, she's called here on the handout, the bleeding woman. I probably could have come up with a better description. Maybe I could have just said woman or sick woman. Let's, um, let's discuss. Danny, can you turn me down just a hair? Thanks. I feel, I feel like I'm a little hot. Hot in the mic. All right. Um, similarities, differences? Obviously, he's a man. She's a woman. Jairus was a, a man of prestige, you know, a leader of the synagogue. Yeah, he was a leader of the synagogue, um, which is interesting. Yeah, especially since Jesus was on his way of being ousted out of the synagogue, so to speak. Right. And it also says something about her. The, the, the idea that he rules the synagogue, he's in charge of the synagogue. She's what, considered unclean. She, and therefore, she wouldn't, be in the she wouldn't be in the synagogue, right. Her sickness would have prevented her from attending synagogue. He was the ruler of the synagogue. The fact that we're told that information about him and we're told that information in, uh, well, it's implied anyway about her. So the way this story goes, I mean, you can you can imagine it maybe just in terms of a historical account. Jesus is in one place, 
he got requested to heal this guy's daughter. He's on the way, and on the way this happens, and then this other thing happens. But I think that Mark has kind of arranged these stories for us. I think the Gospels are more about proclamation than they are about documentation. Like if they were interested in just documenting the life of Jesus, like a biography um, or a documentary, an ancient documentary without cameras and recording devices, that the stories, one, would be much more similar than they are the four stories. So like in Matthew, for example, the teachings of Jesus are all kind of collected together. So 5, 6, and 7 say something about entering the kingdom. 10 says something about missions. 13 is a collection of parables. 18 is about community maintenance, how you maintain the kingdom. And then 24 and 25 is about the coming of the kingdom. And then those collections of sayings, they're collected topically. And then they're connected with the stories. That's Matthew's structure. Mark's structure is quite different. He opens up with Jesus is A, the Christ, and B, the Son of God. And then the storyline kind of builds with him then being pronounced as the Christ in chapter 8 and then builds again until he's pronounced as the Son of God in chapter 15. So the, the gospel writers have, the gospels themselves are structured quite differently. So in Mark's account, this is very, very common, so common that uh, commentators on Mark will call these Markan sandwiches, where um, Mark will have a story, say story A, then he'll go to story B, and then he'll come back to story A again. And so they're, I think, intended to be read as a unit, like together, based on the structure of the literature. So it'd be quite easy to kind of focus in on just the story of the woman with the issue of blood. Um, so that would start where? Well, it would start halfway through verse 24, and it would come down to verse 35. And so people might just focus in on that story thinking, well, hey, look, I've looked at almost 10 verses, and it's an and it's encapsulated story about a woman who got healed, and they would come away thinking that they had the, the sense of what that story was about. But when that story itself is couched within this larger story, and when there's lots of comparisons back and forth between the main characters, I think it suggests that the, the story about the, the healing of the woman with the issue of blood is not a standalone story. It's intended to be read collectively with Jairus. I see this in other places of Scripture sometimes, sometimes easier to see than others. The difference between Nicodemus and John 3 and the Samaritan woman in John 4. So it's not a sandwich because John doesn't really do it that way, but he'll often do it in parallels. Nicodemus comes at night, the woman's in the middle of the day. Nicodemus man, woman a woman. Nicodemus, we know his name, woman, we don't know his name. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, leader of the Jews, woman, a Samaritan. Nicodemus asks a question about Jesus, woman asks a question about Jesus. Nicodemus seems to misunderstand, woman seems to misunderstand. Jesus corrects Nicodemus, Jesus corrects woman. Nicodemus still confused, woman comes to faith. So, so when you see those stories side by side like that, um, that's almost too much of um, a cadence. Like in music, uh, or when we're watching a film, you know when uh, something good's about to happen because the way the light changes and the way the music changes, and you know when something bad's about to happen, right? Because the soundtrack in the song is like really ominous. Like, oh no, something's bad about to happen. In, in literature, um, and I think especially in ancient literature, when you get these kind of cadences, um, they should be telling us something. So again, John's more parallel. Matthew is kind of very high literature and his kind of structure. Mark has these kind of small sandwiches. So he's a ruler. Uh, thanks, um, Frank, uh, Fred. Uh, he's a ruler. She can't go. Somebody else? Observation? Yeah. Um, they both believe that just like either the touch of Jesus or touching Jesus would heal whatever it was that they wanted. Yeah, so um, I mean, what... 
Jairus thought that if Jesus touched his daughter, she'd mm-hmm. be healed, and it's more described as oh, yeah. a woman that if, if she touched Jesus. Yeah, so I think that's great. So in verse 23, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her. And at the end, it says, what, that he touched her. Where's that? He took her by the hand. Um, yeah. And he did touch her. So you have the request to touch. If you just touch her, she'll be okay. And he touches her. And then in between that, it's the woman who touches Jesus, right? She reaches out and touches him, and she's healed. Yeah, without, yeah, without words, just, just the touching. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great thing, is you get him kind of coming and having voice and making a request, and you get her kind of, I mean, I don't want to overread it, but it's like she's kind of sneaking through the crowd, you know? She's, you know, she just kind of reaches out. Yeah, well, there you go. And back, back to the context, back to the context, uh, if you were spiritually unclean, the reason you couldn't go to the synagogue is because we didn't want to transmit the uncleanness. But, I, uh, Cindy, I think you're exactly right. Um, it makes a point. And it makes another point of it, too. The fact that he's a guy and she's a woman. We know his name. We don't know hers. Men are more apt, both in our culture and theirs, to have voice, to get to speak up. Hey, do something for me. And women are less likely to get to speak up. You don't see many women uh, having conversations with Jesus. Interestingly enough, you do in Mark 7, the Syrophoenician woman. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. It's really telling. Here you have a double story, whether, you know, this story is all together, of faith and healing. So whose faith? So in this case, in one of them, it's the faith of the father. It's not the daughter's faith that seems to be effective, right? So that story sounds kind of like the first one, right, where we had friends having faith, and this person being forgiven, we had a father having faith, and this person being healed. But with the woman, it's kind of, she has faith, right? It's her own faith. And what I, what, I, what I like about these stories is, sometimes I have heard, maybe you have too, in church settings, where, where there's a sick person, and they're being told, just have faith. Just have faith. Well, here's a woman, she has faith, and she's healed. Fair enough. But, so far anyway, of the three healing stories, two of them didn't have to do with the faith of the sick person. Had to do with the faith of other people. Uh, My mother-in-law passed away in 2007 uh, of breast cancer. She was only 58. And uh, she was diagnosed when she was 56, about six months after we had moved here. And she believed and she prayed you know, she was an old-school kind of Pentecostal woman, right? And so she was praying for healing, believing in healing. And we had a family member once, after the diagnosis had come back, and it was, it was you know, terminal. You, you have so many months to live. We had a family member say to her, um, you know you'll be healed if you just believe. Like, if you can just do it. Like, what, what does that mean? Like, do it harder? Do it stronger? I mean, what? You know, by grit, you know, grunt. I mean, what does it mean to, 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 to do it? It is a gross injustice. And so she, kind of in the moment, now granted, she was pretty versed in Scripture. But in the moment, she kind of, Mark 2 comes to her mind. And she says, well, maybe you should have faith. She's speaking to the family member. Maybe you should have faith. Because in, in Mark, it's the faith of the friends that end up, you know, delivering uh, the person which I think was an excellent corrective in the moment uh, for our family member who had said that to her. Um, if, if we read on into other Gospels, it's also interesting um, to talk about faith and healing and people that are healed where there's no mention of faith um, or sin and sickness. So in John chapter 5, the first person that we see sick in John's Gospel is a guy who's paralyzed sitting by the sheep gate. He can't get down the pool fast enough. Jesus makes him whole, heals him. And uh, he's out running around in the temple doing stuff. And Jesus sees him and he says to him, stop sinning, lest something worse happen to you, which seems to associate sin with sickness. 
So if, if we read John 5, that guy anyway is sick because he's sinning. The next person we see who's sick is not until John 9. And in John 9, it's the man born blind. So the disciples say, who sinned, this man or his parents? Which seems, particularly in the narrative, it seems to make sense because the only other six person that has been mentioned, those two things were connected. And Jesus says, well, nobody sinned. That this, yeah, this, this, this sickness is not related to sin. Um, what I like about those two stories is it tells us, or one of the things I think it tells us, is life is not a cookie cutter. It's not always about my faith. Sometimes it's about somebody else's faith. It's not always about sin. Sometimes it's just about life. And that what we're up against then is hopefully, collectively as a body, we can discern when sickness is related to sin and there needs to be forgiveness and repentance. And discern when sickness is not related to sin and we don't need to be guilting people. When, when somebody needs to have faith for themselves to make it through something. And when the body needs to have faith for someone. Right? So we have, we have examples of all of those in Scripture. And I think we have examples of all of those in, in our lives. And so in, in Mark's Gospel, there are lots of stories. right? There are healing stories, but then there are also exorcism stories that I don't want to say are one and the same. And then there are also other, we'll call them natural miracles. So there's the, or the meeting of needs. So the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the 4,000. That's a miracle, but it's not an exorcism and it's not a healing, right? But it is part of life, right? Faith and following God in life. Then you also have the, the calming of the storm, which again, not an exorcism, not a miracle, not meeting a need, but a natural not an exorcism, not a healing, excuse me. It is a miracle, right? Yeah, I, I meant to say healing, I said miracle. Um, then the walking on the water. So walking on water, calming the storm, feeding the 4,000 or 5,000, healing, exorcism. Those are all similar things, right? They're miraculous. God's doing stuff. It might have to do with God's benevolence. It might have to do with God kind of showing us who Jesus is kind of through these works. It has to do with kind of deliverance and provision, right? Water to wine. Yeah, the water to wine. It's in John's, John's gospel, kind of a celebration thing. I just think it's interesting that with, uh, with the woman, there seems to be all the disciples there. It's a very public setting. Right. And with, with Jairus' daughter, he only takes the three, and it's a very private setting. Yeah. So we go from a, you know, one, one, the one miracle, one healing, takes place in public, the other in private. I do think it's interesting that, that um, she's 12 years old and the woman's been six for 12 years. She's Jairus' daughter. And what does Jesus call the woman? Daughter. daughter. Yeah. What verse is that? Um, yeah, verse 34. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. The, uh, we have adolescents. Right between childhood and adulthood, that didn't exist in the ancient world. In fact, it didn't exist in the 19th century. Like, I don't think it existed for my grandparents. I have a grandfather that went through the eighth grade, one who went through the sixth grade, and right after that, they worked on the farm until they got the better job working in the mines. Um, adolescence is is somewhat a social construct that came after the World Wars. We get two incomes, we get more people going to high school. And all of a sudden, adulthood doesn't start so young. You don't go from a childhood to adulthood. You go from childhood to adolescence and then adulthood. And that, of course, is expanding, right? Working at the college, I know this. Well, one sociologist said 28 is the new 18. That, um, that people, people are um, facing certain pressures of life that mature you later than they did 50 years ago, 100 years ago, certainly 2,000 years ago. Yeah, so learning prior to that had to take place before you turned 13. I mean, it's why the bar mitzvah is there. Interesting enough, even in conservative evangelical circles, we'll, we'll use a phrase, the age of accountability. You heard this term? I'm not exactly sure what it means. But um, we like, we like yeah, we, yeah, there it is. Yeah, 12 in a day. Um, yeah, so what the age of accountability is to conservative evangelicals 
the bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah, is to Jews. I mean, there are certain passages, books of the Old Testament, that boys were not supposed to read until after their bar mitzvah. Right, the Song of Solomon was not to be read before the bar mitzvah. It was too adult. It's the original PG-13. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry. Bad, bad, bad dad joke. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I wonder if that's typical there, or if that was an atypical expression. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, that's interesting that you even bring up menstruation because this woman has an issue of blood. That's, that is a euphemism. Uh, I actually have heard scholars talk about her having internal bleeding. There was no, there was no one in the ancient world who, who had a concept of internal bleeding. That, that was not in there. You had, they had to see the blood. And it wasn't that she had a bloody nose or bloody ears, right? The woman with the issue of blood has had a 12-year menstruation cycle. And it is, it is excruciating for her. It is... It is um, not only has it taken her money, not only has it made her sick, but it has also then excluded her from the synagogue. Her healing not only heals her body, but it, it um, reinstates her into the community. Then this girl is 12 years old. We're not told what her sickness is, but in the cadence of Jairus, woman, 12 years, 12 years old, or 12 years old, 12 years, um, man, woman, daughter, daughter, faith, faith, menstruation, illness, 12 years old? I, I think it's not a stretch to suggest that her Ill, illness in the whole cadence of the story is the fact that she is 12. And that that is the age that that starts. And that if things were to go bad, it could be, she could be like the woman, right? She could have something severe. And that her, the healing of her in the parallel then would mean that she too can go to the synagogue. Like she too can be part of the community. That the, the, the ruler, the synagogue ruler would have, if he followed the rules, would have had to exclude his own daughter had she had what this woman had. And it's that story of inclusion that I think often gets um, read over or read past that, that Jesus, and as we back up to see this demoniac story, we'll see it there too. Jesus' willingness to include the other is, um, I mean, not, not to say that he was the only rabbi to, to have a broad view, but his willingness to include the other is stretching things past almost recognition for his contemporaries. Um, and so every healing, actually, because the sick, the lame, the deaf, the mute were not allowed to go to the temple. You know the story in Acts, James and John come to the temple and there's a lame man there. And they say, he says, you know, um, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. And they say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give to thee. Rise up and walk. And where does he walk? He walks into the temple. Why wasn't he there before? Because he couldn't walk? No, but because he wasn't allowed. The, the man um, who had been paralyzed back in John 5 and couldn't get down into the pool. Once, once he's healed, Jesus says, get your mat and walk. Where does he walk? Literally, a matter of steps across the street, which put him into the temple. The, the, the pools, there's now a church there, St. Anne's, um, is literally across the street from the Temple Mount. So you walk across and he's there and he gets in trouble for carrying his mat in the temple. Hey, what you doing? I'm doing that here. 
And he's like, oh, that, and he doesn't even know his name. He's like, well, that, that guy who made me whole told me to. Um, so that, that's, a, that's an amazing part of the story, too. You'd think if you got healed by somebody, you'd know the guy's name or at least be able to point him out. I guess he could point him out because next time Jesus is there, he's like, hey, that's that guy. And Jesus is like, stop doing that. <laughs> yeah, one, one of the things that I find interesting about this, this discussion is that even in the Old Testament, there seems to be, it starts off quite narrow and it starts to broaden. Um, and, and in so many ways, like, hey, here's Abraham and his family. Now it's this nation. Now it's this nation that's going to bless the world. In Deuteronomy, it says if you're a eunuch, you cannot go into the tabernacle. You're out. Now, why would you be a eunuch? I don't know. There's a variety of reasons, perhaps. Maybe there's an accident or maybe you chose to do it or whatever. When you get to Isaiah, he's saying, you know, the eunuchs, they're in. But wait a minute. Deuteronomy says they're out. Well, not anymore. And so you, you're starting to get this kind of expansion. And then Isaiah, early on, it's like, you know, the tribes, the tribes of Israel, the tribes of Israel. Isaiah's like, God's going to come back to his mountain, his holy mountain, and he's going to set a table for all the nations. And so you even get Isaiah starting to, I'm, I'm going to say, from my perspective, it's in his kind of prophetic vision that he's starting to see that the God of Israel is not just the God of Israel, but the God of the world. Yeah. Yeah, so it's there, but it doesn't seem to be played out much in the Torah, right? It's in the beginning of the Torah, but then they, they have a kind of a closed group. Yeah, very specific. But then, as you get later in the prophets, it starts to broaden. And then Jesus kind of starts there and then takes it further, including all sorts of folks. Folks that, you know, we know that they're not supposed to be in this group. Come on. Yeah, I think this is a great segue then to that story. But go ahead. Um, just, I don't know, you're talking about that, and it, and it got me thinking, so I just... Yeah. Um, you're talking about, you know, Isaiah, he included the people that were normally not included. Well, eunuch, particularly the eunuch, yeah. The eunuch, and then, you know, Jesus is broadening that even further, and I mean, I don't, I haven't really thought about it until just now, so... Mm-hmm. Anyway, do you think that that applies to today when we open up the church to different people? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think... I think Jesus was pretty radically inclusive. Um, I mean, if, if, we, if we come in just to the New Testament, right? Mm-hmm. So the Ethiopian eunuch is a character in Acts. Um, is it Acts chapter 10? So Philip has, has one of the deacons who've been help, helping serve the, the Greek widows and the Hebrew widows. He goes and spreads the gospel to Samaria, and they believe. Then he's on his way. He's going to go to Joppa. It's a, fun, it's a pretty crazy story right here. He gets transported or something, gets translated, and he's there. Don't know what that was. But anyway, he's there, and now he's having this encounter with this Ethiopian who's in town. And the, it's, it's hard to suggest. I mean, there, there were Jews from lots of different places. We see this in Acts 2, that people from all over, the, the Medes and the Creeds and the, the Arabians and, and on and on and on, right, these different people groups. So this Ethiopian, uh, some suggest that Ethiopians had been coming since the time of Solomon, which could be true. We do know a Ethiopian that came during the time of Solomon. And that now we still have these kind of pilgrims coming from there and that this guy is one of them. He believes and, according to some texts, is baptized. um, And you get kind of that inclusion. So you get the inclusion of the Samaritans, Mm -hmm. which that's, you know, kind of stretching us a little bit if we're Jewish. Now we're going to include the Ethiopians. That's going to stretch us a little bit more. And he's a eunuch, kind of double bad. He had two strikes against him. The very next story is Peter going from Joppa up to Caesarea to Cornelius' house. Now Cornelius is a God-fearer. He had been living as a Jew. Um, That's what God-fearer means. It means he's Gentile by ethnicity, but he's Jewish by faith. He, you know, he had probably, yeah, he had probably made sacrifices. He had, he had been, um, you know, the mikvah, the ritual baptisms. That's what that term means. So he's kind of following the teachings of the Torah. But there wasn't, there didn't seem to be an expectation that they too would receive the Spirit. So Peter comes and they preach and it says they speak in tongues and they're like, what? I didn't think Gentiles could do that. And so again, you get this kind of, kind of growth. 
So yeah, it seems to be a general trajectory that Jesus wants to save the world. It doesn't mean that people can't forfeit, right? Mm -hmm. Right. By forfeit? I mean that just because Jesus loves you and forgives you doesn't mean that you can't reject Jesus. Yeah, so I think this this series that we're about to wrap up on Sunday, The the Kingdom Come, where we've been in the uh, um, Sermon on the Mount, I think on the one hand, the Beatitudes, the opening of the sermon, is this radical inclusion. You know, you're blessed if you're poor. Well, no, you're not. Yeah, well, here you are because you're, you're in. You're blessed if you're meek. You're blessed if you're mournful. You're blessed if you're hunger and thirsty for righteousness. You're blessed if, if um, you've been persecuted. Well, all of that, that blessing of them, you're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed. I think it's this kind of, I don't know why you guys ended up being the poor, the hungry, and the, and the meek, and the mournful. But um, you just, yeah, thanks. You get included, right? That's this radical inclusion of Jesus. It's like if... If there was a bar that you had to reach for to get included, Jesus didn't just lower it, he buried it. Right? So that finishes that part of the story. But then once he gets to salt and light and sitting on the hill, he starts to hear in this real kind of, again, this kind of cadence of, you have heard it said, but I say to you, quoting Old Testament standards and then outdistancing them. So while the um, inclusion uh, expectation is... Everybody. The expectation having come in is really quite high. Uh, hate, don't just, get, don't just not commit murder, don't hate. Don't just not commit adultery, don't lust. Don't just, not, uh, don't just love your neighbor, love your enemy. Don't, you know, each time, I mean, ethically, Jesus is kind of laying us both, um, he give us, gives us an example, and I would say theologically, through the power of the Spirit, enables us to, to follow that example. And it is, um, it's extraordinary, right? I mean, who does that? Who, who, I mean, I love my kids. Of course I love my kids. They're my kids. You know, I love, I love my, my, my student. Yeah, but what about, what about my enemy? I mean, whoever that is, you know. The expectation, yeah. I think, and I think the way that those get set side by side in Matthew that way, uh, I mean, it's scripture and all, but I think it's brilliant. Um, Let's look at the demoniac story, because as we now, it's an interesting way to read, to to jump ahead and then read back. But at the end of Mark 5, we get the story of Jairus and the daughter, uh, and the woman. And I think all of that plays on multiple levels, on on faith, on healing, on inclusion and exclusion, now we, we back up and we get this, this most extended story of an exorcism. Uh, I have the NRSV in front of me now. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when they had stepped out of the boat, and immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with the chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains were wrenched apart and the shackles broken in pieces and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there were on the hillside a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, send us into this swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea. And were drowned in the sea. The swine herds ran off and told in it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and, and the very man who had had the legion. And they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. 
Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown to you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. On one level, I think this is a story of a deliverance. This, this guy's demonized, whatever that means. Right? He's, demons are, are affecting him. And uh, Jesus uh, performs an exorcism. He, he delivers him. He casts out the demons. But coming back to something that um, Pat had said earlier, there's, there's more going on here, I think. This is, this is not just a simple story. I think that this is a story that's saying a lot about Jesus and about who Jesus is and about the power that he has and the authority that he has. This, this story is, is layered with um, meaning, uh, double entendres. The term legion was the term used in the Roman military for a group of 2,000 soldiers. The area that they were in was in a Gentile area. So the, the, the lake, I'll call it, um, the Sea of Galilee, where I'm from, uh, lakes are something that you can see all the way around, maybe. We have big lakes, right? You might have to go down to another lake. You come to Lakeland, and they call these things lakes, but you, know, you could walk around it in you know, five minutes. Where I'm from, that's called a pond. <laughs> um, the sea, I'll put it in parentheses of Galilee, is actually just a medium-sized lake from where I'm from. In fact, the locals there called it sea, but when Luke writes about it, Luke's not from there, he refers to it as a lake. Well, Luke grew up on the Aegean Sea that opens up into the Mediterranean Sea. So he uses the word sea for a big body of water. He refers to this body of water as a lake. So in any case, on the north and on the west, it was all populated with villages of Jews. Capernaum, Chorazin, Magdala, as well as the big city, uh, Tiberias. I say big city, the larger village, Tiberias. Tiberias is still there. It's about 60,000 people, about half the size-ish of Lakeland. Um, major diamond uh, Cutters, Yeah, one, one of the major places in the world. The other side, though, the eastern side, uh, Jews didn't live there. So that term, the other side, was, uh, was a very loaded term. Again, when I grew up, uh, our church was on the other side of the tracks, uh, which meant it was in the poor neighborhood. Um, so the other side of the lake, the other side of the sea, was the area you weren't supposed to go. And good, respectable Jews didn't go there. Certainly good, respectable rabbis had no reason to be over there. Which is why, when the exorcism takes place, there's a herd of pigs. There wouldn't have been a herd of pigs on the western side. They didn't own pigs, they didn't eat pigs, they didn't touch pigs. But, exactly, because, again, according to the kind of kosher laws coming out of Leviticus, uh, you didn't eat um, something with what? Had a split hoof and didn't chew its cud. Um, so that's, that's why that's there. The term Decapolis, where he says to go, means ten cities. And it was these large Greco-Roman cities that represented the culture, Greece, Rome, everything that was kind of non-Jewish. So Jesus goes to that neighborhood. He delivers a man who is said to have a legion of demons, like the Roman military. Like even the, like, on the one hand, you have kind of Jesus's uh, teachings, and they're like, hey, our expectations of the Messiah, they're like, hey, a Messiah could come and deliver us from Rome. And Jesus is like, well, there's actually something more powerful than Rome. You know, there's evil that animates Roman type of systems that you actually need deliverance from. And so that's what I think he starts to address. But he, he addresses it here in a way that both addresses the deeper issue of kind of spiritual deliverance, but then also hints at this idea that this guy has the authority to kind of overcome everything. 
even Rome. That, that concept for them would have been mind-blowing. And the story, particularly in a Jewish context, would have, that, those words, legion, 2,000, pigs, going to the Decapolis, all those words would have jumped off the page. Or if one person was reading and other people were listening, they, they would have been trigger um, words for them. To say that Jesus, yeah, Jesus is a deliverer. Jesus' deliverer is not just, you know, um, spiritual. That it, that it has these kind of larger implications for, for what's going on. Which I, I believe is true. And I think maybe today, this week, you know, coming up next Tuesday, uh, if you ever need to hear the fact that Jesus deals with the deepest things of life and has power over, over all power, um, I think the church needs to say it, and we all need to hear it. I mean, later in, in Acts, you get the whole idea, well, you can eat anything. However, what doesn't change, I think, is the fact that you only can serve God or mammon. And that these people want him to leave. The same thing happens in Acts in Philippi. The girl gets delivered. And now the guy has lost his economic resource. I think the same thing happens in our contemporary settings. So in the 1960s, uh, Dr. King got threatened, got jailed, got um, followed, got his phone tapped. Because he was arguing for a beloved community, right? That we should have the same restaurants and bathrooms and schools. Then he starts to argue against the war and against economic equality. When he's in Memphis, do you know what, he's, do you know what he was in Memphis for the night that he got shot? He was there advocating for equal pay for trash collectors. White trash collectors got paid more than black ones. You say we need a beloved community, you can become a pariah. You say we need a beloved economy, and you can become a martyr. Don't upset our economic system. I think the same thing is going on in Revelation. Rome had established an, uh, roads, government, and economy at a new scale that the Mediterranean world yet had yet to see. So Alexander might have had grown some culture and uh, some military, but Rome takes that to the next level. And so what, does, what is the, um, the slogan for Rome? Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. How does Rome establish peace? Through the sword. We've got all of these, this huge military, this huge road system, and we can kind of control all things. Um, then in Revelation, who can withstand the beast? You can't buy or sell without it. It has more power than any of us. You know, the, the system. Um, for that matter, uh, trivia question. The United States interstate system, do you know which president uh, commissioned that to be built? Dwight D. Eisenhower? They have long stretches of road with limited access, with just some off-ramps and on-ramps. And do you know why Eisenhower said we needed an interstate system? To be able to move our military. We realized after World War II that we had a large military, but they weren't mobile enough. And what the interstate system would enable us to do is to be able to get them around when you needed to. The Romans were great road builders. People talk about it all the time. There were roads that were built 2,000 years ago that are still in use. We can't hardly build a road this year that's not full of potholes next year. They built that system, that road system, to move their military. They used their military to establish their economy. Rome was being resisted by Jesus. And I think we face much the same thing. That like the 2,000 pigs that go into the lake, like the guy who lost his source of income when the girl got delivered and couldn't be a soothsayer anymore, like uh, Revelation that says, who can stand the beast? Uh, the lamb and the followers of the lamb. That's who can stand the beast. So what was worse, you know, 
the demon or the pigs in your life that are causing you to be dependent upon that source of income versus being dependent upon God? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I don't. I don't know. In terms of comparison, I'm going to say one is worse than the other. But I will say this: it's easy to read a passage like this, and it sound like it's just about the one thing. It's just about the exorcism or the deliverance, or it's just about the healing. When it's the other story that I think could be most compelling. So for the healing story, I think the healing's on the top, but the inclusion is there. That's challenging us if we have ears to hear. With the exorcism story, I think the deliverance is on top, but the, 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 the economic, military, political challenge is there. And along with that, God's love for all the world. I mean, were, all the world, even them, right. That was one of the, one of the first non-Jewish evangelists to go out with the, with the maniac. There you go. That's a great point. And, and it's to the oppressors. Right? I mean, it's one thing, again... Like, let's say we took in a refugee. Um, well, they, they got beat up, right? They got kicked out. It's another thing. It's another level to say, we're going to take, take in the people who created the refugees, right? We're going to take in the oppressors, um, which is what Jesus seems willing to do. Like, he's willing to include the Romans. And, and I hadn't thought of this until just now. Not only, uh, Fred, does that guy then go out to the Decapolis and become, at least in Mark's gospel, the first evangelist kind of going out into the Roman world. But doesn't that then kind of foreshadow the confession of the Roman soldier at the foot of the cross that then says, surely this is the Son of God. What's good about this, that even Romans are included, is that we're not Jewish. And, And at least in our culture... We are a part of the most dominant economy. But one of the things I can really get out of this story more than anything, probably the most important, is the exact same you're talking about right now, is he told, you know, the guy wanted to go with Jesus. But he told Jesus, or he told the guy to go back and be a testimony. Mm. And my gosh, isn't that the greatest opportunity for all of us to witness more than anything to say what God has done for us. Yeah. And again, it foreshadows the very last words of this gospel mm-hmm. is go preach. Right. And he does but, this to almost everyone that he heals that says they want to come with him. He sends them back. Or sends them somewhere, right. So often he'll send them to the synagogue, right? right? Just kind of show yourself that you're, you're back in the community, right? You're, you're in. Or, in this case, go home and tell, right? And he went out into the Decapolis. Um, which, again, those, those were cities, not just villages. In the other story, though, with the girl, he gives strict orders not to let anyone know. So don't let anyone know, yeah. And give her something to eat. Yeah, I love that part of it. So, so, I mean, there, there is a, you know, a contrast of it that we can't totally hang out on one side of it. You know, but that yeah. there's something here that there's, I, I think there's times when Jesus does something in our lives that we're to be silent hmm. and wait for the impact of what he wants to do in us before we run off too quickly. Yeah, that's interesting, Janice. Um, that gives me a lot of food for thought. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to think real deeply about that one. Yeah, because my my teaching or my understanding from years back was more that that was because it wasn't time for Jesus to be put on a pedestal. Yet. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that too. But what I what I want to do is I want to kind of give that other idea some consideration. Yeah. Yeah. That that I, I think you're right historically. I think that's the answer, um, that Jesus is smart, you know. He's getting his word out there. And, but I, I think kind of existentially, I want to um, think about what that, what might that mean, that well, patient's talking. He's like, okay, if everybody knows right now what's going on, I'm going to be inundated with people needing healing, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, he certainly told that uh, demoniac guy to get out there and get the word out. But then again, he told this other family not to. And the difference might have been he may not have been in that region back again versus the girl. Mm, yeah, maybe. Context. Context means a lot. Actually, the zealots and stuff, too, they were looking to kind of elect Jesus to be yeah. a ruler in the way that right. during the Maccabean period or whatever like that, he come and, and lead them. And Jesus was a ruler of a very different sort, uh, not what they expected. Yeah. Actually, that particular point, um, I think, is one of the main points of the next chapter uh, in Mark, Mark chapter 6, which we'll look at uh, next week. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the very few stories that's actually found in all four Gospels. Um, I mean, the crucifixion is in all four Gospels. The resurrection pretty much is. Mark just barely hints at it, though. I mean, the others have this big resurrection story. Mark kind of skips past it a little bit. But the feeding of the 5,000 is extensively talked about in all four Gospels. I think that, that gives it enough kind of reason to give it, give it some... It's security. Yeah. It's all their issues. Yeah. What they you know, want, what they need. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and it's interesting, too, um, to see, although it is spoken of, you know, it's included in all four Gospels. They don't, it's not exactly the same story, right? And uh, different parts that they include or emphasize make for interesting accounts. All right, let's pray. God in heaven, uh, we love you. We are grateful for your Son and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. We are grateful for the scriptures that you have inspired and given to the church. We're grateful for the church. Lord, I pray that we would have eyes to see as you see, ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, that our hearts and lives would be filled with compassion and with courage so that we might respond in love, and without fear. In Jesus' name, amen.